Hi, I'm Chinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome back to episode seven of It's a Continent Podcast. Hello, hello. Yes, we are back. Almost, can you believe two more episodes to go and it's the end of season one. We will I be know. back. We'll be back. Spoiler We will be back. We'll be Don't back. worry. <laughs> But yeah, it's been a crazy couple of months, but uh, yeah, it's been, we've, we've been able to put out, this is our seventh episode now. Yeah, seven it is. So in this week's episode, we are traveling to Kenya and telling the story of Wangari Maathai, the first black African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize for her contribution, for her contribution to the environment, human rights and democracy in Kenya. Can you tell that we couldn't get the like, is there right to that kind of sound? <laughs> it is a generic sample, but it's more fun when you make it yourself. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, I appreciate that. So let's take a look at Kenya pre-colonisation to kind of set the scene to Wangari's uh, life. So Wangari was born in 1940 and she and her family were members of the Kikuyu ethnic group, the largest of the 42 ethnic groups in Kenya. Before we get into Wangari's life story, and in order to better understand her, we felt it was important to delve a little deeper into her community. So with pre-British colonisation of Kenya, the Kikuyu people were big on agriculture and keeping livestock. This was their main source of income. And when it came to religion, they believed in an all-powerful god called Ngai, who lives on Mount Kenya, which is the second highest mountain in Africa. And they prayed to him at designated places, like tops of hills and under specific trees. So at this point in time, we have a strong culture which is very connected to the environment. And this also influences Wangari's interest in the environment later on in life. Also in her autobiography, she mentions how she grew up at quite an interest in time because Wangari had an understanding of her Kukuyu culture, but she also experienced its weakening when the British arrived with their colonizer handbook. Which I also think is quite like, must have been quite interesting and also weird for her at the time because you're, you know, your parents are bringing you up into kind of your culture and all of a sudden you're seeing people lose that and having to then kind of yeah. become more British or whatever the British kind of brought in um, with them um, when they colonised Kenya. So yeah. it's quite a... I, I would have felt quite disorientated, you know what I mean? Not knowing what left or right, having to deal with that kind of, like, mass exactly. cultures all of a sudden. It's like one of those questions that, like, I wish I could have asked um, grandparents, just like, you know, because they might have been around when this was happening, or, you know, what was Nigeria like, for example, when it was under British rule? Mm-hmm. My parents were born after independence. So it's one of those stories that, and again, this is why, because we find that a lot of, like, history, when people talk about their grandparents, about the war, the war this, the war that, not undermining the war, of course, shout out the E-Day, but it would be nice to know like our own history and like what that experience would have been like for people living in African countries at that time. Yeah, no, definitely. Like it would be so good, but hey, we're learning, we're learning about this. It's a learning curve. It definitely is. So now we've got a better understanding of kind of Kenya pre-colonization. So post-colonization in the late 1800s, the British colonial era arrived ready with its civilization routine, which heavily focused on weakening the culture of Kenyans across the country, 
Kikuyu's included. Yeah, the British colonial civilization routine was pretty much control C, control V, Hello. to be honest, wasn't it? Or command if you're using a Mac. <laughs> they absolutely loved a good copy and paste, didn't they? They love it. So they started a campaign to make Kenyans feel inferior by making them question their long-standing cultural beliefs. So, as we all know, the British wrote the Colonizer Handbook, and part one of this handbook is creating a campaign which introduces um, to Kenyans Christianity. So they taught them that the gods they believed in were wrong, and that God didn't live on Mount Kenya, but rather in heaven. And of course, that the Kenyans' way of worshipping was also wrong. You know, God wasn't to be worshipped on tops of hills or under trees, but in church on a Sunday. So imagine someone just coming in and be like, you're wrong with that, you're wrong with that, you're wrong with that, this is, this is how it should be. They were basically like, look, we don't rate your religion, we don't rate your language you basically have to copy us. We also don't rate your, you know, your way of living. You have to have jobs like us. So yeah, this is kind of an orchestrated way of how they got in with the Kenyans, essentially. The level of disrespect is unreal. Wangari's parents actually abandoned their Kikuyu roots and became Christians. And one way the British made sure more people adopted Christianity was to give those converters special preference by making them chiefs and sub-chiefs of their local community. This led to um, Kenyans feeling a strong sense of shame and embarrassment when it came to their culture. So you can see this when English became the country's official language. Uh, students, for example, were encouraged to only speak English. And if they spoke their mother tongue, they were punished and had to wear a button. And on this button, it said words like, I am stupid, I was caught speaking my mother tongue. Yikes. It's like, really? In Wangari's autobiography, she talks about how this instilled in the community a sense that, you know, their local languages were inferior and insignificant. Imagine that as a kid, you know, you're associating your mother tongue with basically being stupid, but somehow English is much more superior and makes you smarter. Like, what? Yeah, it's like the British don't seem to, in this time and to an extent, maybe today, believe in a multilingual society. What's wrong with a child speaking another language, you know? It's, um, speaking multiple languages is actually a sign of intelligence rather than a sign of stupidity. Also, at the time, I think the British really hadn't heard of languages like Finnish, because Finnish is one of the hardest languages you could learn. And they also have some of the most interesting words. So I have family in F Finland, and one of my favourite Finnish words is kasarikani, which basically means to get drunk alone at home in your underwear with no plans of going out. Basically, my life currently in quarantine. You know, no plans, just another it's... drink. Let's try out another pins. Guys. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, other languages have really specific terms that English doesn't really have. Like, I would say backfeifengesicht means a face Ooh. that needs to be slapped in German, which is probably applicable to quite a number of people at this point in time. Oh my gosh, I've, I've, I've got a couple of people in mind at the moment, but hey. <laughs> I can think of quite a few. Quite, quite a few. We'll, we'll say them now. No, we won't, we won't name and shame them, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're now on to part three of the Colonizer Handbook, and this involves replacing a livestock-based economy 
with a cash-based one. So this forced Kenyans to go out and find work as the British also introduced an income tax which you could only pay in cash. Because of this, people like Wangari's father had to go out and find a job in order to earn money rather than being self-reliant through peasant farming, which was his original occupation. Because of this, in 1943, uh, Wangari and her family moved to Nakuru where her father worked as a driver and mechanic on the farm of a British settler. And now we come to the final part of the colonizer handbook, and this involves taking advantage of the land and wildlife. The communities in Kenya didn't look at trees and see timber or look at elephants and see ivory. They really embraced the environment around them and lived much more harmoniously with the land. And you'll see this in the documentary, which you'll find in the episode description, um, taking root the vision of Wangari Maathai. I'd really encourage you guys to go and watch this. One of the local village women is interviewed and she talks about how, you know, long before the Europeans came, we had our own native trees and water was plentiful because every river was flowing. But as the population grew, we cut down more trees for building, for farming. And as a result of that, the land and rivers dried up and re things really started to get bad for them. People who had embraced the environment, they were so far ahead of the British yeah. and ways of thinking because even like it's only now that we're really getting into the you know protecting our environment and being conscious and aware of the of our impact but Kenyans were thinking about this long before like 1800s mate yeah I think the problem is as well because the whole aim of colonization was really to commodify everything and make money from everything including the very people of Kenya themselves like you know getting things that be made by them or you know natural resources that's just it doesn't surprise me because that's really just how colonizers saw the countries that they operated in they just saw it as a money-making venture yeah agreed Wangari has pretty impressive uh, credentials, so make sure you read her autobiography Unbowed. Um, that's, we've put that in the episode notes as well, um, for you to learn even more about this impressive woman. This is not an ad, by the way, we just really love the book. Yeah, yeah the book is really good, it's worth getting. Wangari didn't go to school until she was eight years old, and it was here where she learnt how to read and write. And she was also part of the second generation in Kenya to go to school. And at this time, adults joined the education system and some were in her class. She did well and eventually went to boarding school and high school. And age 20, she got the opportunity to go and study in the US, where she received her Bachelor of Science degree and her Master's degree. While she was away studying, Kenya gained freedom from Britain and there were more opportunities available, as the Kenyan government looks to fill roles which were once dominated by the colonizer. So she decided to return home. When she returned to Kenya, she found a job at the University College of Nairobi in the Department of Veterinary Anatomy. And her career bloomed as she went on to get her PhD and carried out her research in Germany. And soon after, became the first woman in East and Central Africa to receive a doctoral degree. Yep, horns, get the horns out. A lot of horns this episode. Love and she was later on made senior lecturer and then chair of the Department of the Veterinary Anatomy and later on associate professor at the University College of Nairobi. So as you can see, her PhD is uh, it's pretty legit, unlike, uh, you know, Gucci Grace's, what was it, two months? Two yeah, months, two months. track PhD. <laughs> Honestly, like... I am wishing so hard that my CV looks just even close 
to Wangari CV. Like, how great, like, amazing, yeah. amazing. Her LinkedIn is certainly one that I would look at and think, how can I be like this? Mm-hmm, definitely goals. So what makes this more impressive is also because it was very counterculture at the time. So it wasn't necessarily, you see, the reason why she was the first woman in the whole region of East and Central Africa to get a PhD um, is just not something that women did at the time. So she would have also faced gender discrimination at work when it came to pay. It's just crazy that she had such such massive determination to make this happen. And I think also just thinking like, you know, when she goes and studies in the US, you know, her mum didn't go to school. She's out there in the big wide world, like putting herself out. Like I absolutely, sorry, I'm just going to end up fangirling um, for Wangari throughout this episode, but... <laughs> like in awe of this woman you know what this story her credentials and everything kind of reminds me of the hidden figures film Um, and it kind of got me thinking because yeah it's great and wonderful to celebrate the achievements of you know african-american women particularly after their very difficult history at the same time i also hope that in the future we will start seeing more sort of films that represent African women within the African continent, you know, doing, you know, things like that because Wangari is do- out here doing doing the madness, really. And, uh, I, I, you know, Netflix is up in the game with the African content. So I really hope that we'll be able to see something like this happen, you know. I definitely agree with you. Like, I think you get so much really good kind of representation of women. I just think, like, growing up, having people like Wangari to look up to not by saying I didn't have other people, but I just think kind of more people from the African continent. Yeah, to be fair, we didn't have many. Yeah, and we could probably count them on our hands, you know. It's, it's you know, um, the, the coming up generation are, are lucky that they have more sort of figures that they can look up to, I would say, definitely. Yeah. We're now going to look at Wangari's life as an activist. So in the 1970s, Wangari got heavily involved with different civic organisations like the Red Cross. And through her work with these organisations, she found that communities were suffering with malnutrition. And this was caused by a lot of the land which was used to produce food for local people to eat, uh, being converted into commercial plantations to grow coffee and tea and sell them internationally. Um, you know, this goes kind of very strongly with the British idea of, you know, commodity to become a commodity. Yeah. How can I make money from this? And because of this, communities were compromising on food quality and feeding their families processed food. Also, when Kenya was under colonizer rule, the British tore down forests to make space for farms and building properties so that British people, you know, could move to Kenya and build um, the country. Yeah, again, this is an example of how the priority of the colonizer is put above those who actually live in Kenya. It's like, oh no, sorry, you guys gotta go. We've got to make some money, got to get these coins. Oh, oh, sorry, you want some coins? Oh, sorry, no, it's mine now. Honestly. 
The idea of planting trees came to Wangari. So in 1977, she founded the Green Belt Movement, where communities were encouraged to plant trees. And if you planted a tree and it survived, you would receive four US cents for every tree. By planting trees, communities would have wood for fencing, building, it would offer shade, and most importantly, provide food. By the early 21st century, they had planted some 30 million trees. And similar initiatives were started in other African countries, including Tanzania, Ethiopia and Zimbabwe. Many people didn't understand why a woman who had accomplished so much professionally would work with her hands with rural women. But Wangari felt no shame as she often described herself as a child of the soil. And, you know, at the time, nobody really thought, you know, they could plant trees. It wasn't a cuckoo custom for women to plant trees. And so I felt like with her, she had this strong, like, passion of, you know what, if you don't think I can do it, I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. During her return to Kenya from the US, she also met Wangi Matai, who was forging a career in politics and they married in 1966. Some other things actually happened in 1966 other than England winning the World Cup. <laughs> Just pointing that you out. Were, any way to bring in, like, some football analogy? <laughs> I have been missing football, so this is what I'm doing. They went on to have three children together. An interesting part of their relationship was Wangari's success. And here you have an educated and highly successful woman. There were very few like her at the time. And this was a time where Kenya was very patriarchal society and a woman's place was essentially behind her husband. Wangari was conscious that she may be accused of not being enough of a, quote, African woman and being a white woman in black skin. Following 10 years of marriage, Mwangi filed for divorce. Wangari was blamed by the media for the failure of the marriage and she became a warning symbol for women who wanted to challenge the status quo and take up space in male environments. A woman wasn't allowed to take up these spaces without being on the arm of her husband. So that kind of reminds me as well, um, the you know the Madam C.J. Walker um, series on Netflix, a self-made where yeah. she had to basically ask her husband to be a plus one all the time mm -hmm. because she just couldn't couldn't get into the right spaces without him no definitely definitely and i think like good on her for not kind of buying down to that societal pressure yeah I'd, i would have loved to be now and think of myself strong enough to be like no this is you know you are my husband but also i'm just as equal to you but she kind of stood her ground and realized that she had a power and knowledge and that she shouldn't hide her intelligence she doesn't need to hide behind her husband because she should get the credit for her intelligence yeah no, definitely following changes in her personal life so you know she's gotten divorced and everything um wangari decided to focus on the green belt movement and going beyond tree planting so the movement began to host seminars where they covered topics like history democracy human rights gender and power she gained great recognition internationally but the Kenyan government of the time, led by President Moy, was not impressed by her mobilising communities, and so they came for her. The government reintroduced an old colonial law that made it illegal for more than nine people to meet in one place without first getting a government licence. The government also kicked her out of the Greenbelt Movement offices where they operated, and so this made it difficult for Wangari to host seminars as they would normally gather audiences of 15 to 30 people. It's also important to understand President Moy and what he was like as a person. So he 
had no respect for his people and the Kenyan land. And there are a couple of the things that he did. So first thing was he decided to build a skyscraper in Uhuru Park, which is basically Nairobi's equivalent of Hyde Park in London or Central Park in New York City. He also detained those who advocated for greater democratic space. So, you know, he wasn't one for freedom, let's just say. Okay, one of them ones. <laughs> yeah. He incited tribal violence. So Moy was aware that many Kenyans as we said, saw each other as foreigners because they formed part of different ethnic communities who had their own distinct culture. And so he used this to instill fear across Kenya. This is kind of like, it's left over from the whole divide and conquer part of the colonizer handbook because it kind of means that as long as that country exists, there's always this tension. So this is at the detriment of the country. Definitely. And you'd think like, after going through all of that with the British, you'd be like, do you know what? I'm not going to redo what they did. I'm going to do better for my people. But hey, you know. He's surprised. Feels like everybody's reading that colonizer handbook. And lastly, he also continued to exploit the land and its natural resources because, you know, that's what he learned from the colonizers. Never pass on anything good, do they? <laughs> In each of these scenarios, Wangari campaigned heavily by writing letters, protesting, taking things to court, leveraging her relationships in the international community. And she was really successful in putting a stop to the president's plan. But this did come at the expense of her safety. At one point, she found herself badly beaten and in a coma. She lost her job and friends. Of course, some people questioned why Wangari was doing all of this as the government was threatening her and, you know, she had children. And... An MP at the time also threatened to have her forcibly circumcised in an attempt to control and intimidate her. That's just a madness. I, I mean, I thought that Jacob Rees-Mogg was the sexist, but this is just... Another level. This MP said this at a time when the country was trying to end female genital mutilation. You know, what... And also President Moy himself taunted Wangari, and during a speech, um, he said... According to African traditions, women must respect their men. I ask you, women, can't you discipline one of your own who has crossed the line? Like, oh, it's so infuriating that this is actually yeah. like being said by a so-called leader of a country. But to be fair, I wouldn't put it past some of the leaders that we have today. Yeah, no, that's true. Many of her friends, you know, began to disassociate from her because some of them believed that an African woman's most important duty was to obey. So she was having to deal with this kind of like, again, cultural tension. What, in the eyes of people, it meant to be a good African woman versus what she believed was kind of her destiny. I hate that word, but like her destiny and what she was actually meant to do and what she believed in. But, you know, yeah. at this point, if I was her, I'd be defeated. I'd be like, I'm not, do you know what? I'm, I'm over being fearless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just a lot of cultural norms to deal with. And it's, it's very confusing because... I feel that maybe colonisation also perpetuated some of the sexism that they saw as well. Because I can't imagine that the colonisers were like, oh, black women, let's uplift you. Like, that oh, was definitely, definitely not, not happening. So <laughs> it's like they probably got empowered even more so by that sort of rule as well. Definitely. And also in her autobiography, Wangari makes a really nice point where she says, you know, what people see as fearlessness is really persistence. 
Because I'm focused on the solution, I don't see danger. Because I don't see danger, I don't allow my mind to imagine what might happen to me, which is my definition of fear. Kind of the way in which she framed these situations, I think really helped her to just carry on and keep pushing. You know, you're having, you are dealing with a president of a country. You yeah. know, it's not like, you know, Jack and Jill next door. <laughs> <laughs> Although Wangari feared for her life in preparation for the 1992 elections, she saw a time for change and hosted seminars to educate Kenyans about the elections and the importance of voting. During those elections, President Moy once again was successful in being elected for another term of five years. In 1997, another year of elections came about, and here she ran for MP and the presidency. As she campaigned, she realised Kenya continued to be driven by ethnic lines, which prevented communities from rallying together and making a real difference. Once again, these elections led to, no surprise, President Moy being re-elected for another term of five Wangari continued to fight, and at this point in her life, she focused on addressing poverty in Kenya. Many leaders of developing countries had not spent the money to benefit their people through healthcare, education, employment creation, or environmental restoration. She became part of the Jubilee 2000 Africa campaign, which focused on cancelling the foreign debts owed by 35 of the poorest countries. So yeah, that's that's a big achievement. Yeah, that's incredible. It reminds me of, because uh, I know we talked about Sankara um, earlier on this season, where he was just really pushing for odious debt reduction because... Obviously, some of these like loans and aids sometimes come with caveats. Yeah. So it's really good, really important that she pushed um, to clear that debt. I think also imagine like the level of interest also on Oof. those debts. I think it's just crazy. I think there's a level of like, it's very difficult. Just as, let's remove the fact that countries, let's not have that. But like as an individual, if you're in debt and you're accumulating interest on top of that, the difficulty of them being able to come out of it, it's like almost impossible and so imagining that as a country where you've got debts millions billions and then accumulating interest on that i'd honestly i'd be passing out i'm sorry um <laughs> don't re-elect me and well yeah why would i want to be in power if i'm owing all this debt but you know each their own mm -hmm. 2002 was another year of election and wangari ran again for parliament she was elected to Parliament with 98% of the votes cast. After 24 years of struggle and difficulty and setbacks, of jailings, beatings and insults, and of determination, perseverance and hope, Kenya finally came together. President Moy failed, and a new president was elected. Wangari was appointed Assistant Minister in the Ministry for Environment and Natural Resources. How amazing! Like, the, her level of perseverance... I think to have like kept going, try running for parliament, then try for the presidency, Ugh, love it, and then be like, no, I'll go again, 2002, go again, another five years, I love it, I love it. These are the role models that we need. Oh, tell me about it. In 2004, um, Wangari won the Nobel Peace Prize and she was commended for her holistic approach to sustainable development that embraces democracy, human rights and women's rights. In her autobiography, she recalls how she felt um, when she got the call that she'd won the Nobel Peace Prize. She states, you know, I cried and thought of the long journey to this time and place. 
My mind went back and forth over all the difficult years and great effort when I often felt I was involved in a lonely, futile struggle. Wangari continued to be a source of inspiration for many and continued to fight for the environment, human rights and democracy. In 2011, she passed away after a prolonged battle with cancer. I wanted to leave you guys with one of my favourite quotes from her autobiography, um, which I think really sums up her approach and just how she kind of framed herself. You know, she states, you know, throughout my life, I have never stopped to strategize about my next steps. I often just keep walking along through whichever door opens incredible it's an incredible story and it's important that we bring you know these sort of stories to light i guess a lesson that we learn from wangari is that we should just jump in and be fearless when it comes to pursuing and standing up for what you believe it's very difficult to do so but we can see that her outspokenness and perseverance are commendable especially considering how initially her work wasn't valued yeah definitely i fully agree and i think as difficult as it can be to show that level of perseverance and fearlessness, I think it's also important to recognise that you might not be the person who benefits from it. Do you see what I mean? You might not be yeah. the person who gets the end kind of reward, but through your actions, that will have a ripple effect and impact you know, future generations to come. And I think that's what should motivate people when you do find yourself in situations where you have to kind of really stand strong in terms of what you believe is right and what you know to be right and having to just keep going and battle that through it's just knowing that okay i might not be the person to benefit from this yeah but still doing that anyway it's the selflessness to be able to to do something not necessarily for the benefit of you or even your generation but actually for the next yeah no definitely definitely so yeah thank you for listening guys that was yeah the story of wangari and yeah her journey in kenya and how she was a key influencer in the country and yeah also internationally so yeah we really wanted to recognize uh, this woman for everything that she did yeah definitely and um our next episode is uh well our finale of the season finale and we will be looking at ghana and uh, the fight for independence so ghana was actually a first african country below the sahara to gain independence from europe i'm excited like i can't believe it's almost like the end of a season yeah so yeah watch this space guys and yeah we will see you we'll see you in two weeks time yeah two weeks time thanks for listening guys thank you for listening guys bye